0: Uh, Today we start a new five-week series called Talking About How We Talk About Jesus. And in some respects, I get it, this series might be more offensive than some other series we've done uh, because it goes in the face of a mantra of our society, and we've talked about this a lot. Uh, You can believe whatever you want, just keep it to yourself. This is what uh, our society tells us, and uh, I get it. it. It's tempting to buy into this idea. It's a lot easier if we just keep our faith to ourselves. Uh, But when we do, uh, we've seriously missed the biblical vision for sharing our faith. And in a very real way, we've compromised the gospel. Because the gospel isn't just about salvation for an individual soul that they keep to themselves, but it is about what God has definitively done in and for the world. Uh, So we can't keep it to ourselves. And and while we could talk about what we share when we talk about Jesus, that's not what we're doing. We're talking about how we share uh, what we talk about. Because uh, while it is important uh, what we say, it is equally important, if not more important, uh, to understand how we say it. Because yes, we want to be a community that shares truth, that proclaims truth, but we we, we want to be a community who is right. But if if we become a community that is wrong in the way that we are right, we will seriously compromise the truth that we so boldly want to proclaim. And so that is why we want to focus on the how. So in this series. Uh, Our hope is that you would have a better sense of how to talk about Jesus and how God has equipped you to talk about Jesus. Because if you understand how, what you will share will be a byproduct. And there's no formula to this. Because you're always encountering people with unique experiences and stories. And, and, and God knows this. God knows the people he's placed in your life. God knows what they are and are not ready to hear. And God knows how he wants you to be used in their lives. Uh, we simply need to learn as a community how to join God in what he's already doing in people's lives. And of course, we hope as a result that you would begin to talk more about Jesus. But we don't want this to be out of some sense of obligation or duty or, or some sense of guilt. We want you to speak about Jesus with the people you love because you understand Christ's love for you and for them and for your coworkers and for the world. So take a deep breath with me. Evangelism. It's going to be okay. We'll get through this. Uh, today, we're going to dip into John's gospel. Uh, John chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. Um, it involves three people. You have, you have Philip, Nathanael, and Jesus. And Philip invites Nathaniel to come and meet Jesus, and he just says, come and see. And this is the age-old, tried-and-true way of, of building uh, the Christian community, invitation, come and see. Uh, and we're simply going to walk through this narrative and stop along the way and take in some of the sights. And uh, this morning, I don't have three points. Uh, and, and honestly, I don't want to give the wrong impression about evangelism by giving you a three-point sermon. We cannot enter into someone's life with three points that we want to share. We have to enter into people's lives and be willing to to know them and know their stories and dialogue with them. We have to be willing to to meet them where they are and lay down our preloaded arguments. So let's get into John's Gospel. If you open your Bibles, uh, John chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We don't get much about Philip's backstory. We know he's from Bethsaida. That's about it. But what we see in Philip is he's not only quick to begin following Jesus, he's also quick to begin following Jesus' example. Jesus invites him to follow him. And what does Philip go and do? He finds Nathaniel and invites him to follow Jesus too. Uh, we don't want to overlook a very simple principle at play here. Who does Philip go to? He goes to his friend. He goes to his sphere of influence. The people he knows. God, he's placed all of us in a sphere of influence. Uh, He's placed all of us in people's lives, and he's placed us there intentionally um, for his purposes. And it would be an error to imagine uh, that he's not involved in the lives of the people that we know and that he does not want us to somehow be involved in their lives. You see, often we think that sharing our faith um, is overwhelming because you instantly think, like, well, I'm going to have to start talking to strangers on the bus or on the seawall. Or, uh, well, I, you know, I'm going to have to start running after cars or something. Or, or, well, I'm going to have to do interpretive dance in Stanley Park. Like, Yes, that might be the case for some of you. I mean, maybe not many of you. But more often than not, God wants us to talk to people who he's placed in our lives. That's what Philip does. And we want to take note of what Philip shares. Uh, remember, both uh, Philip and Nathaniel are, are, they're Jewish. Uh, they're familiar with the, the Scriptures. They expect that God will send his Messiah into the world, and they're waiting for that day. Uh, and, and so Philip says to Nathaniel, man, we, we found the guy, we found the Messiah, Jesus, the son of Joseph, you know, Jesus of Nazareth. He shares what he knows about Jesus, and he doesn't know much. The reformer John Calvin, he takes issue with Philip for this. He writes, uh, How small Philip's faith was is clear because he cannot say four things about Christ without including two huge mistakes. He calls him the son of Joseph and he incorrectly states that Nazareth is his native town. Now I think Calvin's being a little bit of a stickler, uh, but that's what happens when you're a Calvinist. Uh, But uh, Calvin goes on to say something really important for all of us. He says, And yet because... Philip really wants to help his brother and make Christ known. God approves his earnestness and makes it successful. He foolishly calls Jesus the son of Joseph, and out of ignorance calls him a Nazarene, but all the same, he leads Nathanael to none other than the son of God who was born in Bethlehem. All right, yes, Calvin is right. Uh, Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, uh, and he's the son of God. He was born in Bethlehem and then raised in Nazareth. These things are true. Uh, But Philip, he doesn't know these things yet. He will eventually, but at this point of time, his knowledge about Jesus is limited. And he doesn't get it all right. And we should find this comforting. Often, we don't want to talk about Jesus because we don't think we know enough. Or we don't think we'll know what to say, or we're afraid that we'll say something wrong. When I was in elementary school, they, they would announce the birthdays over the PA system like once a week or, or on the day of the person's birthday. They probably did this in your school too, right? And the principal would do this, and it was a, a noble thing. And, you know, the kids loved it. It was the moment to shine. You know, the booming voice would crackle through the PA system, you know, we wish a happy birthday to so-and-so. And every year, on October 10th, I would hear, we would like to wish a very happy birthday to Alistair Bryan Stern. I hated it. Because I was born on October 8th, and and this happened for three years. But my mom, for whatever reason, wrote down in the school records that I was born on October 10th. And the office would not believe me that I was born on a different day. And it took my mom three years to finally go in and and fix the problem. Now, uh, because my mom got my birthday wrong, does that mean she didn't know me? Like, if my mom even legitimately thought I was born on October 10th, and honestly, she has called me on October 10th several times, but if she legitimately thought I was born on October 10th, would she know me any less? Even if we get something wrong about Jesus, it doesn't mean you don't know him. Even if you know a little, you know enough. Your lack will never hinder God's work. The only thing that will hinder God working through you is if you refuse to open your mouth in fear of making a mistake. This isn't to say, though, that we shouldn't grow in our knowledge about Jesus, as Philip will go on to do. Uh, but it is to say that we don't have to know it all. We don't have to have all the answers uh, in order to talk to other people about Jesus. Philip's testimony reminds us that God will use what you do know, and what you do know will be enough. Let's get into Nathaniel's response then. Verse 46, Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is such a skeptic's response. Uh, Nathaniel, he's he's a skeptic. Uh, By any standards, um, Nazareth was insignificant. It was a small backwoods uh, town. Think Chetwin, B.C. Uh, Most of you don't know where that is. It's in the north, kind of by Alaska. And and Nathaniel, he thinks, uh, if God is going to send his messiah, He's going to appear in places that matter. It's going to be in Jerusalem, and in the the temple. Uh, You know, if if God's going to send someone important, he's going to show up, you know, in New York City. Uh, You know, not in Chetwood, B.C. It's that sort of thing. You see, Nathanael cannot fathom something great or glorious in the familiar or what seems so common in the everyday life. He takes offense at Nazareth in the same way that many of us take offense at the idea of God walking in human flesh. The Messiah in Nazareth? You know, Someone so good and holy from such an ordinary place? No way. He's skeptical. And a lot of us, we don't really know how to handle people's skepticism. You know, the moment someone says that they've read a book by Richard Dawkins, you freak out. You just don't know what to say to them. Uh, and we're afraid because we... We don't know if we have the answers to their questions. And let's face it, the questions people ask were a lot harder than can any good come out of Nazareth. So we decide, again, to say nothing uh, rather rather than getting into a situation where we feel in over our heads. But how does Philip respond? He doesn't answer the question. He just says, come and see. And it's actually really clever. Uh, Philip First of all, he's still following Christ's example. Back in verse 39, Jesus said to his first followers, Come and you will see. Uh, Jesus knows and Philip is convinced that an encounter will be more convincing than an argument. But what's clever is that Philip actually appeals to Nathaniel's character. He appeals to his skepticism. You see, a skeptic, by definition, is someone who uh, doubts and questions all accepted opinions. But a true skeptic, at least the ones that I've met, are committed to inquiry and study. They just need to examine the evidence for themselves. Hence, Philip is essentially saying to Nathaniel, well, you're a skeptic. Come do the study. Come do the inquiry. Uh, Come come and see Jesus. See the evidence. And if you're here today, obviously you're a true skeptic. Uh, You have questions. You might even have tough questions. Uh, But you're here and you're willing to find out for yourself. And we're really glad that you're here. But there's a risk that skepticism can become the end destination because you can begin to settle for the questioning or the arguments or the doubts rather than ever answering uh, the question, is Jesus really who he said he was? Because he either was or he wasn't. And you can get stuck in the inquiry and you can completely miss out. Nathaniel, he came so close to completely missing out on what God was doing in the world. Nobody likes FOMA. Know, Julia told me this term, FOMA, you know, the fear of, of missing out. You know, no one wants to stay home on a Saturday night and hear that they missed the party where, you know, Rick James showed up. Like, that, no one wants that to happen. None of you know who Rick James is? Seriously? Come on. James obviously knows who Rick James is. Um, no one wants that. But unfortunately, our skepticism can produce this sort of missing out all the time. Uh, but the true skeptic will even be skeptical of their stances. Nothing good can come out of Nazareth, but there is room in Nathanael's thought to say, well, maybe some good can. And so he goes with Philip to see Jesus for himself. You see, when we invite people to come and see, uh, we're not necessarily offering all the answers to their questions. It's an invitation for them to come search and discover and encounter Christ for themselves, and you're simply standing alongside them on the way. Which brings us to Nathanael going to see Jesus. Look at verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite, indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now this, I think, seems like a little bit of an over-the-top greeting. Uh, an Israelite in whom there's, there's no deceit. I thought Jesus was being sarcastic, uh, but I, I don't think that's the case. It's, it's more than likely that Jesus is just saying it as it is. You know, Nathanael, in a very real sense, was a righteous, pious Jew who faithfully observed the Torah, the best of his ability. We would call him today a good person. You know, and he'd fit in well in Vancouver. Our city is overflowing with good people, or at least people who are self-perceived in their goodness. Um, And often, we are prone to try to help see that they're not really all that good. That's how we respond to people's goodness. And in essence, we try to break them down. Uh, But that's not what Jesus does with Nathanael. Have you ever, you know, got in a debate about who was right or wrong? Uh, and you're just trying to prove to the person how they're wrong. Uh, Julia and I, we might experience this time and time you know, again. Uh, it may or may not have had something to do with baked ziti or, you know, a chocolate donut or gum or basically anything food related. Uh, and, it, you know, when we were going through premarital counseling, it, it may or may not have had to do with who was more stubborn. Uh, you see, when we uh, went through that, we had to fill out this questionnaire where you 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 rated yourself and you rated your spouse and they did the same and then you compared your answers and for stubbornness i gave myself a 6 which i thought was pretty humble recognize i'm stubborn but not too stubborn you know gave julia an 8 you know cuz she's really stubborn and when we compared answers julia she had given herself a 6 and had given me an 8 and we got in a huge debate about this. We were furious with one another. And there's nothing worse than two stubborn people arguing about who is more stubborn. This went on for weeks and months and days. No, it was just you know, half an hour, but it was a really stressful half hour. And we eventually settled on giving each other eights. You know, we were both really stubborn. Now, trying to prove uh, who is better or worse got us nowhere relationally. Jesus meets Nathanael where he is before he tries to get him to where he needs to be. Uh, It's important for Nathanael to know Jesus and come to trust him rather than pushing prematurely to repentance and issues of sin. This is why Jesus, I think, in this scenario doesn't start with challenging Nathanael's goodness. We're getting him to see the need for his forgiveness of sins. Don't get me wrong. Over time, Philip will come to understand that Jesus is the Lamb of God who is slain for the sins of the world. He will come to see the power of Christ crucified and what that means. uh, And this will seriously challenge his notion of goodness. I just want you to see that that's not where Jesus starts with him. Look at verse 48. 48. Nathanael responds, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, obviously, uh, Jesus didn't just see Nathaniel in, in passing uh, in the, the other day. You know, like this isn't just normal, you know, I saw you. Uh, this information, it wouldn't be stunning enough to compel the response. If I walked up to one of you and I said, you know, hey, the other day, I saw you at the bus stop on Georgia and Berard, and you were eating a taco. Uh, I doubt you'd be like, surely you are a prophet, and yes, Jesus is Lord. Uh, no, that, that sort of response wouldn't make sense to the ordinary information that I just shared. Uh, when Jesus says, I saw you, he's clearly revealing something to Nathaniel that only Nathaniel knows. Uh, and we don't know exactly what that meant to Nathaniel, and I don't think we're supposed to know. That's not the point. What we discover is that Jesus uses his supernatural knowledge in such a way to get to Nathanael's heart. He shows Nathanael that he knows him and he sees him so that Nathanael can know and see that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, if we're honest, though, Nathanael, he, he, he was a Jew, but he, he was looking for the Messiah. He was receptive. The good people in Vancouver are not so receptive. They're they're quite content in their goodness. They're not looking for God. So how do we get good people to be receptive to Jesus? Well, they need to encounter Jesus. Because only Jesus has the power to get to their hearts that they might move towards belief. But then we have to ask, well, how do we invite people to come see Jesus? Because Nathaniel was meeting Jesus in person, and the only Jesus I know is a very pleasant Spanish man, but he's not the Messiah, you know? How, like, what are we inviting people to come and see? Well, we invite people to come and encounter Christ through the word. Because Jesus, he was the word made flesh, and the scriptures are the word written down and recorded. And it's through scripture that Jesus continues to reveal himself to people in the world. So we want to invite people into environments where they can hear the scriptures preached, or they hear the scriptures read, or they can come into an environment where the scriptures are studied. Because Jesus cuts to the heart through scripture. Look what the author of Hebrews says. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see, I don't want you to trust in your own ability to convince someone that Jesus is really who he said he is. I want you to trust in the power that God has given to Scripture. That might mean then that you invite someone to come check out a Sunday service so that they can hear the word preached. Or if they're not really into coming to church, maybe you send them a link to a podcast so that they can listen to a sermon in the safety of their own home. I mean, maybe it means that you invite someone to our small groups, whether that's an Upwards night where they can study the scriptures and meet other Christians who might. Help them see that this faith thing might be plausible in their own lives or whether it's an outwards night and you appeal to them coming and seeing uh, the word lived out by serving the poor and caring for the marginalized. You might invite them to a small group event. You might uh, just invite them to meet up and chat over a copy and be straight up about your intentions. I want to meet up with you and talk about Jesus. You'll be surprised. They'll either say no or yes, but people will often be receptive to that sort of conversation. Just don't have a weird agenda. Be honest about what you're doing. Uh, You could even just start out by buying a friend a simple book that helps all this stuff become simple, like uh, Basic Christianity by John Stott. Great book. I wish I read that book 20 years ago. But, and this is important, the point of all of this is not to become Bible thumpers. The point isn't to try to shove scripture down someone's throat unwillingly. The point is to compassionately invite someone into an environment where they might encounter Christ. And to persist in a welcoming invitation, but never to push it beyond the point of damaging the relationship. And a surefire way that people are going to encounter Jesus is through the scriptures. Our job is to extend the invitation. And after that, it's Christ's job to reveal himself to people. Uh, But in addition uh, to inviting people into environments where they can hear the word, uh, we should also earnestly desire that Jesus empower his church to prophesy now. That might have just taken you off guard. You were tracking with me until I got all weird and started talking about the need to prophesy. But hear me out. Why do I say that as a church we need the gift of prophecy? Uh, What takes Nathaniel from a place of, of questioning or disbelief to a place of saying that Jesus is the Son of God? Jesus speaks supernaturally to him, to his heart in a way that defies natural knowledge. He prophesies. Look at what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14.1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. What Paul means by that is anytime we want a gift, it can never be for the sake of the gift. It must be for the sake of love, which means building up the common good. That you want the gift not for yourself, but for others. So Paul says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially, underline that, especially that you may prophesy. And if we're honest, that's not high up on our earnest desires. I earnestly desire Chipotle. I will get it after the service. Uh, I earnestly desire that our society would implement the siesta. This would be a good implementation. I earnestly desire to go to the Maldives. Apparently it's going to be like 10 grand to go. I don't think it's going to happen. Sorry, Julia. Uh, But look what Paul goes on to say. Like, Why should we earnestly desire prophecy? Why should this be high up on our desires? Why should we want to prophesy over eating Chipotle? Uh, Verses 23 through 24 in that same chapter of Corinthians. goes, if therefore the whole church comes together. So Paul, he's talking about a public gathering. And all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter. Will they not say that you are out of your minds? The answer is yes. But uh, if all prophesy. And an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Doesn't that sound a lot what, like what happened to Nathaniel when he encountered Jesus? The secrets of his hearts were disclosed. He recognized God in his midst. You see, prophecy isn't just... Uh, foretelling of the future. It is in some instances. But more often than not, in the, in the prophets, what they're doing is speaking truth and calling Israel back to relationship with God. Uh, Paul describes prophecy this way in 1 Corinthians 14.3. He says, The one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. And you might be thinking right now, well, okay, fine, like, maybe we should have that. I don't know how to prophesy yeah, I don't know how to either exactly. And uh, the Bible doesn't exactly give us you know, steps, like a how-to manual of how to conjure up some prophecy for your community. It just says that we earnestly desire it, which means we pray. We ask God to impart this gift to us when we gather together on a community, whether that's Sundays or in small groups. We ask God to impart this gift through his spirit into each of our conversations with people about Jesus. We pray that God, uh, by the power of his spirit in us, would speak through us in such a way that people are built up, encouraged, or consoled. We pray that he would take what we say and make it specific in people's lives in such a way that the secrets of their hearts are disclosed before him. We pray that God would work beyond our natural knowledge and impart his supernatural knowledge through us. and we, We may or may not be aware of that happening But we pray either way. And what that might look like is you get a sense of what's going on in someone's life, and so you ask them about it. Or you you feel like you're supposed to share this verse with someone, so you share it. Or you feel like you have a word of encouragement for them, and it turns out to be just at the right time. Or you call a friend out of the blue to ask them for coffee, and you you couldn't have known what was going on in their lives. We, We pray that God might impart this sort of knowledge in and through us for the sake of others. And we make it a priority. Paul says to earnestly desire this. What does that mean? It means you pursue it relentlessly. You don't cease to pray that this would happen in and through our community. And in our city, in a culture where everyone thinks they're really good, we desperately need the gift of prophecy. Because in Nathanael's encounter with Jesus, we see how a good person comes to be receptive towards Christ how he comes to see that Jesus isn't just the son of Joseph, he's the son of God. And so our earnest desire is that Jesus himself would speak through us for the sake of others, which is why Paul says prophecy has to be done out of love. Prophecy can never be the end. The gift can never be about the person prophesying. It's always just one of the ways in which God leads people to himself. Because look at how Jesus ends his conversation with Nathanael, verse 50. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What's better than encountering a prophet? What's better than encountering prophecy? Encountering God. Jesus tells Nathanael that He is someone much greater than a prophet. He's someone even much greater than the Messiah. He is the Messiah, but he is also God in the flesh. That he is the place where heaven intersects with earth. That he is the fulfillment of this vision that Jacob had long ago. That he is the way to which heaven is opened. And that God mediates his grace and salvation to mankind. God himself found in a manger. God himself raised in Nazareth walked in Galilee. God himself experienced in in mundane and ordinary places God being found even here and now, even in your life. That's what's greater than any gift we could have is the true encounter with God present with us. You see, when we invite someone to encounter Jesus, uh, we're not inviting them to adhere to some abstract theology. We're inviting them to encounter uh, the living God, even in this place. We're inviting them to see that God knows them and sees them and that they matter to God. And the reason that we extend the invitation isn't, again, out of some sense of guilt or obligation. It's in response to the fact that we ourselves have been invited. That we ourselves have encountered God with us. And that we want to follow Jesus' example just like Philip. Come and see. Come and see if this is true. Come and see if there's any validity to this story that has changed my life. So here's what I want us to do as a community, really quick. I want you to think about who God has put in your life. It can be friends, coworkers, uh, family members, neighbors, baristas, cashiers, people you know you talk to in the elevator and you never ask their name, but you know the name of their dog. Um, write a list if that would be helpful to you, and then pray, prayerfully ask God to help you figure out how to invite them into an authentic encounter with Christ. That might look different depending on the person, depending on your relationship with them. And if you can't think of anyone, pray that God might bring some people into your life. But above all, pray that you yourself would have a fresh encounter with Jesus. Because the desire to invite others should not flow out of a desire to muster it up, but in response to Christ who has invited you into God's love, into his heart. And pray for our community that we might be a place that proclaims the word boldly and in truth, but that God might also impart the gift of prophecy to our community, not just for our own sakes, but for the sake of people who do not yet understand the great love that God has for them. If you're here and you're you're, you're trying to figure out, is Jesus really who he said he is? I would say the the best way to figure that out is to start following him and answer the questions on the way and and just say, all I know of me to all I know of Jesus. I might not know much about him today, but I'm willing to find out more about him tomorrow. And if you're skeptic, seek after the answers. Don't settle for the inquiry. And for all of us, I invite you to come and see as we worship and pray That God really is among